What if every experience, every hardship, every obstacle was given to you, not to break you, but to mold you and strengthen you? What if the center of your suffering was actually the key to ultimate health? And what if your own pain was meant to be the catalyst for your greatest purpose? Welcome to Buddha Belly Life, empowering purpose, mind to microbiome. Dr. Brandt. Obviously, mental health um, is a huge deal, and that's my one of my passions. I had anxiety and some level of depression since age four, you know, as a child. And I can I can attest for like you say that it's a combination approach for environmental um, and you know the experiences that we go through, and and, and it's multifaceted, like anything. Um, but right now, I mean, we, we already had what I would consider a mental health epidemic. Um, and now we've seen it skyrocket way beyond that since 2020. Um, I talk about the brain gut a lot. And all I have to do is share a couple things about mental health or some factoids that challenge the common misconception that it's a broken person, that it's only the only treatment for it is pharmaceutical medication. Um, all I have to do is touch on some of those things and my DMs start flooding. My messages start coming in um, with people with their personal struggles and stories acting like, you know, and not acting like stating that basically this is the first time that they've heard that there is another way, that there's another reason, that there's maybe hope for them, that the level that they're living at or surviving at, whether on pharmaceuticals or not, is not the end of the road for them, like a diagnosis, like they were born this way or they were messed up because of childhood trauma and PTSD. So therefore, this is the best it's going to be for them. Um, and I think when we bring some of that stuff to life, we we challenge that misconception and people are starving for that. So tell me, you know, a bit, you know, give me some of your insight on the mental health epidemic um, and what you think from that functional perspective of environmental um, and especially in correlation to the recent changes and experiences that people have been through. Okay, good. Yeah. So since the 1960s, um, Alzheimer's is up by five times. Mm -hmm. Um, Anxiety disorders are now the number one problem, mental health problem in the United States has now overtaken depression. And one in four women between 20 and 45 is taking an antidepressant. One in four. I couldn't believe that statistic when you said that in your book. I was shocked. Yeah, yeah. And it especially hits young people. Um, Mm -hmm. School-age kids the rates of depression are five to eight times what they were in the 1960s. And the rates of anxiety are eight times what they were in the 1960s. And that's not with better testing. That's the exact same standardized tests that were used back then. Plus now we have ADD, ADHD, autism, all these things that were hardly even known back then. Um, Something like, according to the... um, the CDC, over a third of teenage girls have a diagnosable anxiety disorder, and over a quarter of teenage boys do. 
this is crazy, isn't it? This just seems like something is seriously wrong here. Um, and it's like, what is it? It can't be genetics, right? Genetics takes 10,000, 50,000 years to, to do something. It's clearly something environmental. Well, it may be the psychological environment has changed or something to that. But as we just talked about, the physical environment has changed dramatically. We have all of these neurotoxins now in our environment. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is really see how these are affecting the brain and to begin to really shift our understanding. So the standard American diet, which is abbreviated SAD, is a recipe for anxiety, for depression, and for cognitive decline, right? It's, it's high bad fats, low good fats, high carbohydrate, high in, uh, highly inflammatory, full of processed foods, pesticides. Um, it's crazy. Um, you know, this epidemic started when a few things started happening. One was when the dietary guidelines shifted to include low fat and high carbohydrate. In the 1980s, that, that began to really shift where people began, the medical establishment began to say, no, we need to cut out fat and we need to use more vegetable oils and we need higher carbohydrate. At that point, the obesity epidemic, the mental health epidemic, the chronic disease epidemic began to take off. Also about that time is when glyphosate started being used. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a steady line up. It's been almost exponential. It's been amazing how much that has um, infiltrated our environment now. So to heal the brain, again, we need to work at the level of the brain, but also at the level of the psyche. So at the level of the brain, we talked about before, you know, the four pillars, neurogenic, ketogenic, or low-carb, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. Okay, so it turns out that when your neurogenic rate increases, anxiety goes down, depression goes down, cognition goes up. And the book goes into about 30 or 40 different nutrients we can take. Let me just say one of them, which is omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil. Um, Christine Thuray, or San, Christine San, Sandrine Thuray, a neuroscientist at the University of London, increased the neurogenic rate by 40% simply by adding omega-3s to the diet. Omega-3s are the fundamental building block of the brain. Mm -hmm. So the brain consists of about two-thirds fat. And of that, a third to a half of it is DHA. And DHA is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids, right? There's ALA, EPA, and DHA. ALA isn't terribly important. EPA is important because it's a powerful anti-inflammatory. But DHA is the fundamental building block of the brain. 
And the brain is always building new neurons and new connections. And so we need high quality building materials. We need good DHA to, to support that process. They did an experiment with monkeys some time ago where they raised one group of monkeys on a low omega-3 diet and one on a high omega-3 diet. And then they looked at their brains. And the low omega-3 diet monkeys had very simple, undifferentiated brains. But the high omega-3 diet monkeys had very complex, richly differentiated brains, almost like humans. It's the single most important thing nutrient anybody can do. Um, some others would be blueberries, green tea extract, um, high antioxidant foods. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Also antioxidant, also anti-inflammatory, but mm -hmm. highly neurogenic as well. Mm. Methylchalcone, um, a form of hesperidin, which is a bioflavonoid, keeps new brain cells alive. Um, because about half of them will die off unless we use them or support them with nutrition. Um, also, if you, when you take omega-3s, it's, it's important to do a molecularly distilled form of omega-3s because mercury accumulates in fish. Mm -hmm. So if you do too much poorly made fish oil, you're not doing your brain a favor. Mercury is, I think, the second most powerful neurotoxin known, second only to plutonium. Um, it, we, we don't want that in our system. And most people need three to four grams a day of high-quality omega-3. And if you're vegan, you can do algae forms of it. Okay, so that's neurogenic. Ketogenic, meaning low-carbohydrate and high-good fats. Our brain and our bodies can use either glucose as fuel or ketone bodies, fat as fuel. Glucose is a very dirty fuel. It produces inflammation, oxidation, a lot of other byproducts. But ketone bodies or fat is a very, very clean fuel, efficient fuel. Richard Veach, a Harvard researcher, looked at how different cells respond to ketone bodies as fuel and discovered that, for example, the mitochondria of the heart are 28% more efficient when they're fueled by ketones. And since the brains, uh, the neurons of the brain, uh, the mitochondria there are also uh, very similar to that of the heart, it's believed that your brain will also operate at 28% greater efficiency when you're on a ketogenic diet. And if you've, been, uh, if you've been in what's called nutritional ketosis, there is a kind of clarity, a kind of stability that comes to the brain that is, is really quite wonderful. Um, and it turns out that a ketogenic diet is also neurogenic. It also is anti-inflammatory. Um, and also, particularly as people get into their 40s and 50s and 60s, they experience some degree of insulin resistance, which means that their blood sugar level goes up. And so a good test for anybody to do is called the hemoglobin A1C, which is like a snapshot of your glucose levels over the last three months. And if it's over 5.0 or 5.1, 
you'd be well advised to bring it down because for every tenth, uh, every point one that it rises, there's a faster rate of cognitive decline that happens. So Alzheimer's is something that happens 20 to 30 years before we see symptoms. So if you're in your 20s or 30s, now is the time to start eating right. Do you have a desire for fulfillment? Does helping people tap into their own health mentally, emotionally, and physically fire you up? Do you believe in the impact of the gut microbiome on overall wellness? You may be an HWCA coach. For more info on our cutting-edge health coach trainings, visit hwcacoach.com. What would you say to people that, I think this is where I come in, where it gets tricky for me, focusing on the brain gut, because I got here because of a passion for mental health, because the power it had over giving me my life, my life back, right? Um, And allowed me to exist and live, you know? Um, But it sounds like we're just talking about food and diet and a lot of these people, which we are, and there's good reason for that part. Um, But there's a lot of people that are going, okay, you know, I am, I'm a child of trauma. Um, not only was my diet bad, but I mean, I'm a child of trauma and that holds all, a lot of the weight in their mind. And some people were given multiple weights against them, um, you know, with all of those things in their environment and their diet and then in their experiences. And so how can you speak to them a little bit and empower that journey for them to seek out these things when there's the, you know, trauma and and deeper to trauma. Yeah. Thanks for bringing us back to that. I I got carried away with that last one. No, no, it's great. It's great info. (laughs) Um, Because that's right. Again, we are psychophysical beings. And so it turns out that trauma also has a big impact on the brain. Mm -hmm. It creates... And the gut, absolutely. And it creates inflammation. Mm -hmm. There is a neurogenic slowing. And the hippocampus actually can shrink with severe trauma. Mm -hmm. The hippocampus is a very interesting part of the brain. It's this crescent moon-shaped structure. Um, And half of it is involved in cognition, in processing new memories. Mm -hmm. And the other half is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the regulation of anxiety and depression. So it's also the main part of the brain that grows new brain cells. So in Alzheimer's, for example, it massively attacks the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, the person can't make new memories. And when we stop making new memory, when the rug of memory is pulled out, the whole self begins to collapse. Right, you look you're around people who have Alzheimer's, and it's like they're not there. They're you know some part of them is really gone. Their identity. Yeah. So it turns out that severe stress can actually reduce the size of the hippocampus by one quarter. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Mm. That's like saying one of the four chambers of the heart isn't there. I mean that that's really significant. However, the hippocampus also is the place where new brain cells grow. So you can regenerate cells in the hippocampus. And so this neurogenic part of the diet, I think, is really important. 
Um, the other half of it is really then working with trauma. So there are a number of psychological processes involved with anxiety. One of them, as you mentioned, is trauma. Having trauma as a child, whether it's physical trauma, sexual trauma, war, um, an accident, um, whatever it is, that has a big impact on the brain. That, that can change how the brain grows. But more than that, it puts the whole nervous system on high alert, on red alert. Mm -hmm. The person mm -hmm. becomes hypervigilant. Mm -hmm. And so is just ready to jump at the slightest bit of stimulus that seems similar to what, what caused it. Mm -hmm. And so getting into therapy with a trauma-oriented therapist, I think, is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Most therapists are not um, educated in really working with trauma. Much of the traditional psychotherapy techniques and ways of working can actually make trauma worse. It's a very different paradigm working with trauma, right? First, we mm -hmm. need to resource the person. We need to have the person be safe before we get into any kind of experiencing of the trauma, as opposed to regular psychotherapy where you just sort of jump right into it and try to tough your way through it. That can simply be re-traumatizing and just Mm -hmm. recycles the, the, the trauma. So it's, it's important to get into therapy with somebody who is really trained in trauma work, either somatic trauma work or EMDR. That's my, I love EMDR. Yeah, EMDR is fantastic. Um, also, MDMA is on a fast track now um, as a breakthrough therapy mm -hmm. uh, with the FDA. Um, in the phase two trials out of 107 people who had PTSD for an average of 17 and a half years, after three MDMA sessions, one year later, two thirds of them had no PTSD symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, so they're expecting that will become legal in the next year, maybe two. That's another way of working with it. Um, but finding somebody who is savvy around trauma is really important. So that's one cause of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Another is, um, it really comes out of generalized anxiety disorder, um, mm -hmm. which is something called signal anxiety. This is something Freud discovered a long time ago, that, you know, if we grow up in a family where certain feelings are not okay because they threaten the parents in some way, and everybody has some of this. Mm -hmm. where if I have these certain feelings, it's going to threaten my tie to my mother or my father. And so I, I push those down. I learn to sort of sequester those feelings. Mm -hmm. Later on in life, when those feelings start to come up, the defenses are now in place. As they start to come up, all of a sudden, the unconscious goes, danger, 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 anxiety. And the unconscious pushes those down before the person even knows that they've been feeling them. All they feel is some mild anxiety, and then that passes. Generalized anxiety disorder, say, say anger. I start to feel anger. I say that was forbidden growing up. I start to feel it. I start to feel anxious. I don't quite know why. A little bit later, I feel better, but I realize later, oh, yeah, I was really angry at that person. I didn't realize it at the time. 
So you didn't express it or maybe set your boundary or handle. Exactly right. So a lot of generalized anxiety disorder is that. It's essentially the fear of being ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we can't undo it ourselves, right? Because we learn this in relationship. Mm -hmm. And we need to unlearn it in relationship, like with a therapist, with another person who's saying, yeah, that's okay. It's okay to feel it. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to express it. Mm -hmm. The repeated expression of that over time, it it becomes okay again. Um, Another is um, inadequate self-soothing. Uh, structures inside where the mother when the baby is crying picks up the baby soothes it, calms it, speaks to it strokes it allows her calm nervous system to entrain the upset nervous system of the baby Mm -hmm. and that repeated over and over again after a while the baby and then the child begins to internalize that begins to be able to self-soothe when it's upset many people have inadequate experiences of that where they have not learned to fully self-soothe to Mm self-calm or to find a place of real peace inside and this is a place where meditation can be really helpful finding a deep place inside peace and calmness so there's other things as well but those are some of the ways in which working psychologically Mm -hmm. is also really helpful and i think that um what's beautiful about everything that you just gave everyone on in the realm of mental health is that you showed that it takes multiple tools to really, like you said, is it the chicken or the egg? We really, we need to, we need to take both if we really want to do better, to live better, to not struggle with chronic depression, anxiety. I mean, I was in my thirties before I was able to really break through mine. And I always say, you know, at that point in time, most of the common world would tell me that it was impossible that if I'd had it since age four um, and I still struggle with all kinds of anxiety disorder type things, but I'm not stuck in a full-blown panic attack in the middle of the grocery store for no reason. Um, You know, things like that. And so it shows that there's hope. And because I moved those boulders, I've spent a decade now moving more boulders. Like I know that we can just move another and move another and we're not stuck. We aren't doomed because we had an adverse childhood experience or multiple. We're not doomed forever because of choices that were outside of our own choices or experiences that happened to us. We can restore and we can bring ourselves into alignment using the tools that you just talked about. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So I thank you for that. That one's, that's very, very, I'm very passionate about that. Thank you for joining us for another empowering episode of Buddha Belly Life. For more information on gut health and mindset resources, visit BuddhaBellyLife.com. And remember, heal yourself and then empower others to do the same.